Uh, as I've been doing in each of my sessions, uh, there's two handouts. I believe I caught enough of you that you got both of those. The one stapled pack, I'm encouraging you to look at that in the coming week and work through that on your own. We'll be working on the one-page handout, okay? That will be the outline that we're going to take. And that's how I've approached uh, all three of the sessions that uh, I'm doing this time. So this is Fundamentals of the Faith. We're eight lessons deep now, if you've been here for all of them. Mark's done some. Jim has done some. I've now done three. And uh, so we've got uh, three or four to go, right? Four more, I guess, to go. So glad to have you with us tonight. All right, if you take a look at the uh, one-page handout, we'll get uh, right into it tonight. Let me encourage you right off the bat to consider memorizing these two verses that lead off the outline, if you haven't already. Uh, I think they're well worth your time, and they'll be a big blessing to you, especially as we talk about this area of uh, prayer tonight. So let's have a word of prayer. And then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for this evening and another opportunity to share your word, to consider some of the fundamentals of our faith. Pray that uh, the lesson would strengthen us, encourage, uh, encourage us to pray, and to depend on our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no one can really comprehend exactly how God works in this matter of prayer. How does this play out in his mind and in his plan? The Bible is unequivocal that God is sovereign. And yet within that sovereignty, he commands us to exercise our wills in certain areas. And one of those areas is in prayer. If God did not act in response to prayer... All the scripture's teachings about prayer would be worthless, and all the commands to pray would be pointless. Our task, therefore, is not to try to solve the dilemma of how God's sovereignty works with human responsibility, but to believe, to believe and act on what God does command about us praying. We must pray in faith, believing that our prayers do make a difference to God. It appears from Scripture that in many cases, God seems to work in combo with men. I'll give you an example of that uh, from Scriptures, uh, King Hezekiah in Isaiah 38. The prophet is sent to the king, and he tells him, prepare your house, you're going to die. Hezekiah doesn't want to die, and so he pleads with the Lord for an extension of life. And Isaiah is instructed of the Lord, go back to Hezekiah and tell him, you will not die. Instead, you will now live. And in fact, he lived for 15 more years. So certainly we can see there evidence that God was working in and with Hezekiah's prayer. In fact, you could say had Hezekiah not prayed, he would not have gotten the outcome that he desired. And so we are encouraged to pray. It's vital then that a prayer be spoken in that case. All right, if you look at the outline down at Roman numeral one, 
Why pray? All right, so we're going to start by talking about that for a few minutes. Why pray? Uh, I read something from an author that I thought was very interesting about the different mindset between someone in the West, that would be the United States and Western Europe, versus someone whose mindset is more of the Near East or the Middle East. Uh, Let's tackle a question and see how the two would respond to this. Since God knows everything, what can we tell him? And the Westerner pipes up very quickly, nothing. He already knows everything, and he's already determined everything, so why pray? But the Mideasterner has a different attitude. He's posed with the question, what can we tell God? And he says, everything. We can share any request with him. He knows our needs better than we know them ourselves, and he loves to give good gifts to his children. Jesus did teach his disciples that God was omniscient, and yet it was not to discourage them from praying then, but rather it turns out it was an encouragement to pray because they have that Near Eastern mind. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. We can see that playing out in a very familiar passage. Matthew 6 and verse 8. So my comment was, Jesus taught that God is omniscient. And yet at the same time, he encourages people to pray. We can see that happening here in the Matthew passage. Look at verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. All right, there you go. God is omniscient. God already knows your needs before you ever open your mouth. And yet, you tell me, what follows starting in the very next verse? The Lord's Prayer. So we have Christ telling the disciples, God already knows everything about you. He knows what you're going to ask him. So why pray? Well, Jesus says, indeed, you can pray about everything. And he goes on then and gives that pattern known as the Lord's Prayer or sometimes called the Disciples' Prayer. So prayer is not made so that God can find out what we need. God wants us to pray because prayer expresses our trust and our dependence on him. He delights in being trusted by his people. He longs to give good gifts to his children. So let's investigate some subheadings here as to why we would want to engage in prayer. All right, let's start with this reference, Matthew 6, 5 through 7. Now, I've chopped this up. I've only used a few phrases enough to get my point across. But notice what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Then another phrase later. But when you pray, go into your room. And then another time. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. So the key there is not if, but when. Jesus is fully expecting his people to always be engaged in prayer. It's a given that they're going to pray. 
little bit later, still in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Those three verbs, and I've bolded them, I don't know how well that came out there, but those verbs, all three, ask, seek, knock, are what we call continual imperatives. So an imperative is a command, right? And to be continual means that really what it's saying is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. In other words, make it a continual practice. And Jesus says that that one is going to receive if they are constant in prayer. We're not going to look at the parable for time's sake, but you probably know it. The parable of the widow who goes to the unjust judge, pleads her case, won't leave him alone until he's going to grant her request. Well, Jesus told him right up front before he gives them the story what their attitude should be. They ought always to pray and to not lose heart. So we could go on with verse after verse. Jesus is clear he's expecting his disciples to pray. Then we also find that the New Testament writers pick up that theme and just keep running with it. Here's Paul in Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. To continue steadfastly means to devote yourself to prayer and make it an ongoing priority. The verse goes on to say, being watchful. In other words, be alert to specific needs to pray about. Don't be vague and unfocused. Get down to specifics when you're praying. That's what it means to be watchful. Paul, again, in 1 Thessalonians. You can memorize this one tonight. All right? Pray without ceasing. Okay, Pray without ceasing. The emphasis there really is about a relationship. It's a relationship that a believer has with a loving father. That that's just to be a continual attitude through the day. Uh, be in prayer all the time. Uh, maybe a 30-second prayer. It may be a five-second prayer. But your mind is thinking that way because you have a relationship with him. Then you probably know well the Hebrews reference, uh, a great blessing. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word prayer is not in the verse, but it's obvious that's what it's about. We're to go to the throne and we are to ask and we will receive mercy and grace. You can see on your outline then, why pray? Point B, because prayer is answered. James 5.16 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So we can ask the question, all right, how are these prayers answered? The answer to that is in different ways and in different times. And I think it's important that we go over this so we do not misunderstand how prayer works. And I've listed here four different possibilities that sometimes happen. We sometimes get a direct and an immediate answer 
when we go to the Lord in prayer. That first reference, 1 Kings 18 there, that's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Jeff alluded that to that this morning in his message, but he was emphasizing the people wavering. I'm going to emphasize the prayer that was given. Elijah challenged the 450 prophets to a cookout. They were to set up an altar, put on a sacrifice, and call on Baal to answer them and to bring down fire and consume it. So they prayed and they prayed and they cut themselves and they danced around and don't mean to be uh, disrespectful, but made fools of themselves for half a day. Nothing happened. Elijah said, okay, fellas, move over. I'm going to build my altar, going to put a sacrifice on it, and I'm going to pray. And he prayed that the Lord would show the people that he was the true God. Because that passage says the people were wavering between two opinions. They were really tempted to go the Baal way and leave God. And Elijah said, we need to see something definite and very quick here. And as soon as he was finished praying, boom, down comes the fire. The sacrifice is consumed. The people respond, the Lord, he is God. And it turned the day. So there are times in which God answers directly and quickly. The Daniel reference there is a very interesting one. It literally says that while Daniel was still praying the prayer, the angel Gabriel was sent to give him an answer. You can read that a little bit later in Daniel chapter 9. God was already sending his angel while Daniel was still mouthing the words. That's an immediate answer. We do find, though, that often answers are delayed. And now we're going to get into some harder ones to accept. And yet we need to be taught that. There are delayed answers that are going to happen. Take a look at these two psalm references here. 38.15 But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. Future tense. He hasn't answered his prayer yet. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Would you notice, though, in neither reference is there any mention of time. We don't know when God answered those. Simply that David waited. Now, often David is caught in the Psalms starting to waver a little bit himself because he cries out many times, How long? How long, O Lord, before you answer my prayer? So at times, a request is going to be granted, but it may be deferred. The postponement is intentional on God's part. The need's real. The request is a valid one, but the timing's not right. God knows best when to give the thing for which we prayed. Let him work in his own time. In fact, if you think about it, because we're human, faith would never grow if all prayers were uh, answered positively and immediately. There would be no reason to have to trust him. I got to pray and he's going to answer. It's not done like that. God knows what he's doing. 
One author had this to say. I thought it was good. Having seen that he's faithful following prayer over a week, you find it easier to trust him over two weeks. Seeing the answer to persistence after a month strengthens you to wait in faith even longer for another answer. It's a faith builder. That Daniel reference there, Daniel chapter 10, that's an example that we will never know the why behind. But uh, in that case, Daniel was offering a prayer. God, again, was sending Gabriel for an immediate answer, and Gabriel was intercepted. Now, this gets deep, and I'm not going to try to get theological here, but the scripture simply says that an evil angel representing the kingdom of Persia challenged him and fought him. This is the fighting Gabriel. And so the answer was delayed. Michael finally came, the archangel, and was able to free Gabriel up, and he went on and answered that prayer. So sometimes prayers are delayed. It may be something that is way beyond our comprehension. But God has a plan and a will regarding that. Thirdly, sometimes there are different answers. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. Beginning in 7. So to, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He prayed three different occasions. But he said, God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul finally learned the lesson, and he said, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What seems like a denial of a request was simply God molding Paul toward a different answer. Paul thought his need was to get rid of the thorn. God knew his need was that he needed more grace. He needed to learn a lesson that God would take care of him. And as far as we know, that thorn never left. His entire lifetime, he had this whatever, okay? Men have offered all kinds of opinions on what the thorn was. But the point is, God gave him a different answer. And then fourthly, there are times in which there's the denial to an answer. You will get no on some prayers. Sometimes it's because they're foolish and selfish. Thank God he does those. The 1 Kings 19 reference there, that's Elijah following the experience against the prophets of Baal. As soon as he's finished and has a victory, Jezebel is furious. And she says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah, for some reason, in a moment of weakness, believes her, doesn't trust God, and he hightails it for the wilderness. And as he's down in the wilderness in southern Israel, he gets to a point where he cries out, Lord, just take my life. Just kill me. 
And God denies that answer. He says, no, I have things for you to do yet. You have to commission the next prophet, Elisha. You have responsibilities in anointing King Jehu. You have things yet to do. And so he denied that. Over in Matthew chapter 20, the other reference there on your outline, that's James and John coming to the Lord. And you might say, well, that wasn't a prayer because he was standing right there with them. But it's a request to him. It's like a prayer. And the two brothers said, allow us to sit on your right hand and your left when you're in your kingdom. And Jesus denied the request. He said, that's not even mine to give. That's the father's to give. And I am not going to honor that request. Now, don't go overboard. There are times in which the prayer is sincere and it's selfless. But the Lord still denies the request. You're now above my pay grade. I have no idea why, but in God's wisdom, he sometimes does that. We've got to trust in his omniscience. Isaiah 55, I think Jeff alluded to this today as well. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are here. Your thoughts are down here. You can't comprehend everything I'm doing. And so sometimes we will have uh, denial of a request, and we have to trust God that he knows what he's doing. Prayer keeps us humble. That's another reason why we pray. Psalm 123. <clears throat> to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. To lift up my eyes is to pray to God. And the psalmist says, I need to remember that I am the creation. You are the creator. And my role is that of a servant to his master. We need to keep humble. <clears throat> While the ungodly will say in Psalm 14, there is no God. The believer says in Psalm 16, I have no good apart from you. We acknowledge to God when we pray that we're not masters of our own souls. But instead, we humbly repeat the ancient poet that Paul quoted over in Acts 17. In him, we live and move and have our being. Just like a young child's completely dependent on his parents to meet their needs, so the child of God recognizes that same relationship with his father. And then prayer completes what might be called a circle of communication. Communication's two ways if it's effective. Prayer is the other half of the equation of communication between God and man. God speaks to us through the word, and we respond to him in prayer. Uh, Don Whitney, in his book Spiritual Disciplines, he adds this third aspect. Meditation is the missing link between Bible intake and prayer. After the input of a passage of scripture, meditation allows us to take what God has said, think on it deeply, digest it, and then speak to God about it in meaningful prayer. David says the same thing in the Psalms. Psalm 19:14, he says the following, 
Let the words of my mouth, my prayers, and the meditation of my heart, digested scripture, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so we have a number of points here as to why pray. Let's move on to Roman numeral 2, where we take a look at some patterns for prayer. Uh, Turn back to the Matthew reference. And we actually want to look at that Lord's Prayer or Disciples' Prayer. And have a few comments to make about each of the phrases that are there. I've broken it down into uh, two Roman numerals with three subpoints each. Notice in uh, verse 9, Matthew 6, the prayer begins, Our Father in Heaven. This tells us that all prayer is predicated on a relationship to him. Prayer is for God's family. We should begin prayer with the recognition that God is our Father. He's the one who gives us life. He loves us, cares for us, provides for us, protects us. We are to honor him as our Father in heaven. Then, It goes on to say, hallowed be thy name. Hallow, a word we don't use much today, means to revere or to sanctify or set someone apart. God's name is to be praised as it's a reference to God himself, his character and all his attributes, attitudes, and actions. Jesus said to the Father, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Now, if you think about it, he didn't need to manifest God's name. They knew God's name. So it's clear there that a name stands for someone's character. It's not just who you call me, it's what I am. And so that is important that we hallow his name because then we honor all that he is. Thirdly, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Uh, Our greatest desire should be to see the Lord reigning as king. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray for the program of God to be fulfilled. And then his will will rule over this earth as it does in heaven. Those are petitions relating to God. The second half of the Lord's prayer relates to the needs of man. Says then, give us this day our daily bread. That's a tough one for us in America. We normally don't have to worry about our next meal, okay? Uh, and so this is a little bit tough for us to wrestle with sometime. I think the key is daily. The request is for daily bread. When we ask for daily bread, we're acknowledging that our times, <clears throat> excuse me, are in his hands. We trust God to provide the needs of that one day, to accept the Lord's provision for the day without concern for our needs, welfare tomorrow. That's a testimony of our contentment in him. Then he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the Matthew passage now we're at. Luke also records the Lord's prayer, and I think it's instructive here 
the debts is not much of an emphasis on monetary. Luke, in fact, substitutes sins for debts or trespasses against others for debts. And so think of it as moral or spiritual debts. And so Jesus is saying, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us, those that have spiritual debt to us. We're in constant need of forgiveness ourselves. First uh, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. While our sin today and in the future don't change our standing before God, they do affect the intimacy and the joy in our relationship with God. Christ explains the difference of forgiving our debtors later in the same passage in Matthew. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, see, not monetary debts, transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Believers cannot know the parental forgiveness of God, which keeps fellowship with the Lord apart from forgiving others in heart and word. And then finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, Here we have a plea to be delivered from future sins. Of course, God never tempts man to do evil. All right, so you have to be careful when you read into that. Uh, James 1.13 is very clear. Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. The petition in that prayer is primarily one for protection. A plea for God to provide what we and ourselves do not have. It accepts that temptations are dangerous and acknowledges our deficiency with them and asks for deliverance from them. The idea really is do not permit us to be led into temptation. Then besides the Lord's Prayer, another good pattern is to just read the Gospels and see what Jesus did constantly. I picked out just a few of these just to give you a flavor of this. Uh, When did his actual ministry begin, his preaching ministry? Right after what event? Yeah, his baptism and the temptation, right. At the baptism, this is is overlooked many times because we tend to read the Matthew account. Luke has this. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... Jesus was praying immediately after he was baptized. To start his active ministry, the first thing he did was go to prayer. The heavens then were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, and the Father says those famous words, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So to start his ministry, Jesus was praying. As he begins his ministry, he's always praying praying to God. It, uh, there's a number of times when the scripture says, often rising before dawn, he would seek a deserted place and he would pray. He was seeking to be with the Father. When he got ready to choose the 12, 
Do you remember how long he prayed before he actually selected them? All night. Again, that's a Luke reference, chapter 6. He was so burdened about that task that he prayed all through the night. Reason? These were the men that were going to represent him after he left. And so it was critical. His last evening with the twelve, he spent time praying to the Father. That's John 17, what's really sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, as he's praying to the Father. What did he pray for? That he would set the disciples apart and keep them from evil. His ministry on earth finished in prayer. On his last night, after the John 17 prayer, he goes into the garden and he prays. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. He faced the realization that soon he'd be made a sin offering for us and he'd experience the awful reality of separation from the Father. His final words were a prayer for those responsible for his crucifixion. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he continues to pray in heaven. Notice Hebrews 7 here on the screen. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Note, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's praying right now. What's 1 John 2, 1 say? If we do happen to sin, we have an advocate. That same word is interpreted intercessor. One who prays for us. And so you've got all through the Gospels the example of Jesus. Thirdly, we're going to share an acronym with you. This is the one from uh, the MacArthur Manual. So you've got that on your handout. Uh, There's all kinds of good ones for this. MacArthur chooses one that's called ACTS. A-C-T-S. And it's a way to remember to keep your prayers balanced. So this is part of the heading of a pattern for prayer. Make your prayers balanced. What do we tend to focus on most of the time? Asking. Hmm? Asking, right. Yeah, we're requesting. Nothing wrong with that, but we tend to kind of overshift in that direction. Let's look at this uh, little ditty, okay, little acronym using A-C-T-S. First of all, adoration. This means that we should be reflecting on God himself. Praise him for his attributes, his majesty, and his gift of Christ. And I've included one verse for each. You could write, jot down the reference if you care to. Uh, under adoration, I just picked Psalm 66.1. There's tons of them. Shout joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. And then note this. I say to God, I'm praying. I say to God, how awesome are your deeds. That's adoration. C is for confession. Admit to God that you've sinned. Remember what 1 John 1.8 said? If we deny that we ever sin, we deceive ourselves. Be honest and humble. Remember, he knows you and loves you. Again, all kinds of possible verses. Psalm 51 is a famous one. David's uh, repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's confession. T, thanksgiving. Tell God how grateful you are for everything he's given you. Oh, here's the tough one. Even the unpleasant things. Your thankfulness will help you see his purposes. All right, we've got uh, a 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't you love it when the scripture makes it crystal clear what the will of God for you is? You know, we wrestle with this. We wonder, is this God's will? Is that? There are times in scripture when he takes all the doubt off the table. Here's one of them. You're to give thanks for everything. That's the will of God for you. And then supplication, A-C-T-S. Yes, we do ask requests. But make make specific requests. Pray first for others and then for yourself. How about 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2? And we're going to mention this later too. You're going to notice Paul does not pray a whole lot for physical needs, or personal wants, and so it is here. Finally, brothers, pray for us, but it's that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. That's Paul supplicating the Lord. He's asking him to protect him from those that would do harm to him in the gospel. Whoops, don't want to advance yet. Then you can see on your outline, D, the prayers of Paul. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Beginning in 17. I really don't have time to read the passage. I, I just want to highlight something here. I've made it a practice to pray this ever so often for my adult children and their spouses, for my Sunday school class, for anyone that I'm ministering with. And it's basically this, that they might know, okay, that they might know the hope to which they've been called, that they might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us according to the working of his great might. That's something you can copy from Paul. That's an actual prayer from Paul in Ephesians 1. And uh, uh, it's great to do that. Another one, which I cannot get into, Ephesians 3. In fact, I will mention this. There's a good little book that's just on the prayers of Paul. It's by D.A. Carson, and it's called Praying with Paul. And it really gives you uh, an overview of all the scriptural prayers that Paul offered during his life. And then finally, under this Roman numeral, uh, reading godly prayers outside of scripture is a good pattern. And I've copied one onto the outline for you, so we're not going to read it. But the book is called The Valley of Vision. You've heard some of the men once in a while quote one of these from the pulpit. Uh, when we're going to prayer or before a song. But the Valley of Vision 
has some great prayers uh, by some great praying men from days gone by. And I've got one of those for you on the outline. All right, thirdly, moving on. Uh, got four things here that we want to talk about as far as truths concerning prayer. One, prayers to be done in the will of God. Notice a couple of references here where that phrase comes right out. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We're to pray in the will of God. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so we need to be mindful of that, that we want to pray in the will of God. Good little sentence I've got underlined in my notes tonight. Prayer is not to get what we want, but to want what he gives. And that's, that's something you learn with time. That doesn't come easy. But prayer is not to get what we want. And we always think prayers about requests, prayers about requests. Yeah, to an extent, but it's not to get what we want, but rather to want what he gives. And if you are really following scripture, you're going to have that pattern. Uh, David said in Psalm 37, first delight in the Lord, want what he wants. And then what? He'll give you the desires of your heart because your heart will be changed to match his and you'll get the answers to that. B, prayers to be done in the spirit. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit. We're to pray really with the realization we need him. The Romans passage, remember, talks about the fact that he takes our prayers and he's able to present them to the Lord with groanings which cannot be uttered, okay? That's important that we pray in the Spirit, mindful that the Holy Spirit uh, directs those prayers. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And then prayers to be done in Jesus' name. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then two chapters later, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, all of you here know this. This is not a magic formula. If you don't end your prayer in Jesus' name with those three words, you're not guilty of the unforgivable sin, okay? In fact, I read a number of authors that said it'd be good if we didn't probably say it as often, but rather include it in different wording or put it in a different place in our prayer even. Because to pray in Jesus' name means that we're coming to the Father in the name of Jesus, meaning that he's granted us the authority to do so. If you're coming in somebody's name, he's authorized you to use his name. And so a person in the ancient world, his name, I mentioned this earlier, it represented who he was. And so praying in Jesus' name is praying in a way that's consistent with his character. 
Yeah, in fact, I read one author, he said it'd be better sometimes that we just start off. I come to you in the authority of Jesus' name. I don't come to you in my power. I don't have any righteousness, but I come to you in the authority of Christ. That's the same as saying in Jesus' name. Prayer then is to be done in faith. Matthew 21, 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. And then the longer James passage, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. George Mueller is said to have left a lifetime record of prayer. Have you ever heard that name? 1800s, England, orphanages. The man was amazing. He would wake up one morning, there would be no food on the table for the orphans. He would begin praying, and food would come. It just happened again and again. I read that he had a book that he kept. There were 25,000 answers to prayer he had written in his books. When a friend asked him to explain a secret, he simply said, have faith in God. He was not emphasizing faith. He was emphasizing God. His faith was in a God that he could be bold in and could trust. Our belief in the possibility of prayer is based on the doctrine of God. Because I believe in his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his faithfulness, I can therefore depend on him. And then finally tonight, you can see in your outline, prayer does involve a struggle. It's amazing. You've probably heard preachers say this too. I've heard it twice this year. I think at a pastor's conference and then once in an elders meeting here at the church. Men who have been in the ministry for years saying, the most difficult discipline for me is prayer. And that's amazing, and yet you can sense that that would always be kind of a struggle for us. That's because you can see here in letter A, prayer is hard work, and it requires sacrifice. Luke 22, in the garden, Jesus being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That was hard work. That was sacrifice. You have to persevere. Remember the Matthew 7 earlier, ask, seek, and knock. Remember, continual imperatives. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Be persistent. It's hard work to be effective in prayer. It also involves time and involves sacrifice. One of Jesus' busiest days, he woke up and he went into a synagogue and healed a demon-possessed man. He leaves the synagogue and goes into Peter's home, which was right next door to the synagogue, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then news starts to spread and it says every sick person in Capernaum came to the door and he healed all of them. Okay, so that's quite a day. So, don't you think the guy should be able to sleep in the next morning? Not so. It says that he rose before dawn and went to pray to the Father. That was the sacrifice that Jesus took. Instead of resting and sleeping, 
going out before anyone was awake and praying. Uh, Prayer has to overcome frustration and disappointment sometimes, discouragement. A couple of references here. Look, first of all, at Psalm 13.1. Here's David, one of those how long psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? What's the context? He's prayed and he's not gotten an answer. And so there's discouragement and there's frustration. How long is this going to go on? You can see the same thing in Psalm 22. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I'm praying to you all the time, and you're not answering me. But David doesn't end the Psalms that way. Let's go back to 13, all right? Psalm 13, where he says, how long? By the later portion of that Psalm, look what's happened. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He got an answer. We again do not know the time frame. That's big. But David got an answer to the how long. God answered it. Same thing about the Psalm 22 one. Oh my God, I cry day and night. I get no answer. By the end of that psalm, here's what David's saying there. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Both of those which started so uh, negatively, how long David finds answers to God. But he had to overcome frustration and he had had to overcome discouragement. Prayer requires honest self-evaluation. See where I want. Yeah, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Prayer requires honesty. And if you are living in sin, you're not confessing your sins to him. Isaiah says he'll hide his face. He doesn't hear you. James 4.3. Can't believe how many verses ended up tonight that Jeff used this morning. And, of course, we never talked to each other about these, and our topics were very different, but the same scriptures keep coming up. James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You have to have honest self-evaluation and come to him in honesty. And then finally, prayers learned. We'll close with that. Thomas Edison once said, we don't know the millionth part of 1% about anything. We don't know what water is. We don't know what light is. We don't know what gravitation is. We don't know what heat or electricity is. We have a lot of hypotheses about them, but we do not know them at all. But we don't let our ignorance about these things deprive us of their use. Same thing's true with prayer. 
There's much about prayer we may never learn in this life. But we need to take advantage of what is available in the Bible as far as instruction and start using it. You learn by doing. The disciples learned to pray not only by hearing Jesus teach about it, but by being with him when he prayed. Don't forget that the words, Lord, teach us to pray, that didn't come at some random time as they were walking along one day. The context there is that the request followed a time when the disciples had been praying with him. And when he was done praying, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. We can learn principles of prayer, not just catchy phrases to say, and we can do it a number of ways. One, silently joining our pastor when he leads us each week in the congregational pastoral prayer. Really paying attention to another saint as they pray in a prayer meeting. There's all kinds of help that you can pick up and begin to feel comfortable in prayer. I'll end with this little poem, James Montgomery Boyce, a great author. Prayer is the simplest form of speech that infant lips can try. Prayer is the sublimest strains that reach the majesty on high. And that is our lesson on prayer and the believer. Thank you for joining us tonight. Let's do pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for truth, absolute truth that is found only in your word. I thank you that there's so many references we can turn to and encourage us to learn how to pray, what to pray for, model after our Lord, model after the apostles, model after men of our day and men of old. I ask that we would be people of prayer that we would get comfortable praying, raising our voices to you, thanking you for who you are, confessing our sins, being thankful, and supplicating for others and ourselves. Pray that you'd bless this group. May they uh, gain from having been here tonight. Bless them on their travels home. Thank you for our church and for this body of Christ. I pray that we would work together recognizing that we need each other, and we're thankful for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.